Lord for that. I appreciate that. I appreciate when I hear somebody singing about the cross of Jesus Christ and gets into it a little bit. That's okay, isn't it? Man, if you're singing about the cross and you've got nothing going on, that's what we're talking about actually today. And so, But I can't miss noting that, Miss Barb, you can't ever not play nothing but the blood like that again. So it's got to be like that every time from here on out. I don't know if you noticed that. It was awesome. Appreciated that. Uh, praise the Lord. John chapter 4, if as you're turning there, uh, do be in prayer. Of course, this morning, as Brother Nick uh, mentioned a little bit, uh, Brother Rob Gascoigne, uh, I don't know if he's still in the hospital here this morning, but I knew he had gone and then gone back again yesterday uh, for some, uh, had some shortness of breath and different things that were uh, troubling, and so uh, I don't know that they found a, a reason for that, so be in prayer for them. Uh, and then Miss Jennifer, I believe Thursday night, uh, had a couple mini strokes, and so she's in the hospital, and they're going through some things there, and so be in prayer for her. I guess there's a narrowing of an artery in her brain, uh, and they don't know why. And so be in prayer for those two uh, needs here that need prayer that the doctors would have wisdom. Of course, uh, uh, the great physician knows all about it, and so, uh, but be in prayer that his hand would be on those things. John chapter 4, this morning, we'll read verse uh, 19 down through verse uh, 24. The Bible says in verse 19, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. If you don't know where the story is here, this is the woman at the well, and, and he's just revealed that he knows all about her past marriages and affairs in her personal life, having never met her. And so she says, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And then she asks this question in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain... And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye, ne- ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We can't really stop there. The woman saith unto Him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When He has come, He will tell us all things. She's a little confused about what He said, and so she said, Whenever Jesus gets here, He'll figure out what you meant. And he says, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful to be in your house. We're thankful to gather together. We're thankful that we can worship a holy and perfect and righteous God that would come and shed his blood for us. And God, we just ask that as we were to pour out our praise and our worship to you and to preach your word, God, that you might be glorified, uh, that you might... Bless us this morning with your presence and with your spirit that we might hear from you and that our worship of you might truly be in spirit and in truth this morning. Lord, we ask for your blessing again and on those that could not be here and your blessing on their lives and protection and guidance there. We love you and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're not going to speak as much this morning uh, about what had taken place with the woman at the well 
Uh, we're going to speak a little bit more on Jesus' response to her question about worship. And as you're familiar, uh, this woman, she had uh, just been spoken to about her five husbands and then her current affair that she was not married to. She seems to change the question, bringing up a, a, a different point about where to worship. As Jesus addresses, and she, he says to her, go call thy husband. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, yeah, you've had five, and the one you're with is not your husband. And it seems as if she's trying to divert the conversation when she says, oh, okay, um, you sound like a prophet. You know some things you probably shouldn't know. But where should we worship? It seems like she's totally changing the subject, that this is out of left field, uh, but I want you to see maybe this morning that this isn't as much of a non sequitur as it seems at the beginning. This is actually a vitally important question that she asks. This is important. Why, how could that question be pertinent to her current scenario or her current situation or what's really going on? Who really cares where the special place to worship would be located? How does, what does that have to do with her life at all? And if you understand, we're going to be going some things, so follow along with me. Uh, we'll try not to be too long, but I want you to see some things about this. Since the beginning of the formal revelation of God, when God began to formally reveal Himself through His Word to Moses specifically, God declared that His presence and His Spirit would be in the tabernacle, later in the temple. That's how God declared to Moses through the setting up of those things and the building of the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant, God declared that's how His Spirit would dwell with them. And there's a reason for that and there's things to that. Later on saying that uh, He would be uh, in the temple. If you had to sacrifice, if you had to make confession of sin, you would go to the temple. If you had a large matter of prayer and things that were pertinent on your, on your soul, you might go to the temple to pray. Jesus would even talk about those that were going to worship and pour out their praise to their God, and they would bring their gift to the altar of the temple. And, and Jesus would even talk about if you've got problems there, get out the temple and fix it before you come back, because you're coming before God. If you wanted to be near, in other words, the presence of the Almighty God, you go to the temple. Meaning if you wanted to experience, interact with God in any way, you had to go to this place, in a sense. Prior to Jesus, God would not permanently dwell with His people in dwelling their hearts, and we'll talk about that, uh, as He would not dwell in league with wickedness, uh, with those that were destined for an eternity in hell. In fact, if you understand, the high priest could not enter the Holy of Holies uh, as he did once per year unworthily. If he came in haphazardly or not appropriately or not in the uh, preferred and, and prescribed method, uh, he would be dead, struck down. We could read even about the stories of how the ark might be mishandled and that God would bring death through those things. Because those that were coming in contact with the Almighty had to be separated, in a sense. 
And if they were going to come in contact with his spirit and come in communion with the spirit of the almighty God, it was done in a very specific manner in a, in a specific place. You understand? And you might think, well, if that's the case, if you mess up, if things are going to go awry, why not avoid God? Why would you even bother? Why would you want to be near the Ark of the Covenant? If you mess up, you might die when you touch it. Why would you want to be the high priest if every year you had the thought of, if I go into the Holy of Holies wrong today, I got this rope around my ankle because they got to drag my body out. Who wants to be the high priest then? Why would anybody want to attempt to approach him in such a dangerous uh, a way? Why would you want to travel to the temple, go to this place? In 1926, a physicist made this comment, mankind is incurably religious. And the reason for this, and the reason why this is an important question to her, the reason why anybody would bother uh, uh, trying to approach God, even knowing that it might mean their life, the reason is that somehow, somewhere, deep down inside, everybody knows there's some part of us that's missing. Everybody Everybody knows that. While we labor for success, for power, for love, for enjoyment, even if we attain it all, we know that somehow there's still more to life. We know that's not it. If you were to achieve every aspiration of your life, if we were to get everything we ever longed for, everything we ever desired, we would still know something's missing. It doesn't totally fulfill. There's nothing on this earth and nothing in this uh, planet that totally and completely satisfies us. We're never complete that way. We know we're incomplete. And it seems that mankind understands intrinsically somehow that God is the only one that can fill this void. And so societies after societies for thousands upon thousands of years have set up temples, have tried to approach God, have made up gods if they've had to, to try to find what might fill this void. Try to complete that which seems incomplete. Try to satisfy the dissatisfaction that's felt by all of humanity. And so the question here of this woman in where she can find God is not irrelevant. It's actually quite insightful, even if she meant it to change the subject. <laughs> Maybe this woman, as you would understand, is somebody that's been declared a sinner by society, somebody that would be broken and hurting, somebody that we could see if we were to look into her life, has been moving from lover to lover, trying to find some satisfaction. Maybe she feels more acutely her need to find God in hopes that it can fill the void in her heart. Where she can be complete, where she can find how to be whole, where she can be okay because she knows, maybe more than others, that she's not okay. And so she asks, where do we find God? Where is he? A thousand years prior or so, Jeroboam had sent up, uh, set up a mountain, uh, a temple in Gerizim as the new place of worship for the divided Israel. And this woman needed to know if this was the place where she could find God or if she had to go to Jerusalem to find God. She needed that answer. It was important to her. I don't think it was as much a non sequitur and a change of subject as maybe it appears. I think this was something important on the uh, heart of this woman. 
And Jesus' answer to her uh, is, is so deep and so profound that really it's unlikely that she could have possibly understood the full implications of it at this moment, but I think she would later come to find out. And notice, before he gives his real answer, he first addresses that the Samaritans had no right to set up this alternative place of worship in the first place. Uh, she asked, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, you say that in Jerusalem is the place that we ought to worship? And he said, ye worship, you know not what. <laughs> first of all, let's pull that off the table. First of all, uh, we want to make sure we understand that the Samaritans and this false temple that they had set up uh, was fraudulent, they had no right. Even though his next statement would make this point irrelevant, he doesn't miss the opportunity to convey the truth that God does not beckon to the whims of our worship. Did you follow that? Even though he's going to say, actually, neither temple matters because it's totally not about the temple <laughs> anymore. But he still doesn't miss the opportunity to say, but you can't worship God on your own terms and think he's just going to beckon to it. It doesn't work that way. We don't get to do whatever we want and call it worship. We don't get to do whatever we want and pretend it's acceptable to God. God's not obligated to placate our sense of religion. It doesn't matter what we might feel like worship should be like or what we feel like is right and wrong or what we feel like a Christian should be. God says there's a right, there's a wrong way. And so Jesus doesn't miss the opportunity to comment on that because I think maybe this woman needed to hear that. But then Jesus gets to the real answer and states that it is now is and the time is coming that it will no longer matter where physically one will worship, but that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. That's what he says. He says, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. He says, the time is now changing. This is going to take place now in this time that you live. And it's going to change everything in the manner and way you worship from here on out. That the worship and the nature of your interaction with the Lord will change entirely and will no longer be based at all on a location. Now, I don't know if we today could possibly grasp the effect a sentence like that would have on her. I don't think we can because we've never thought, for the, for the vast majority of us, we've never held the belief that God can only be found in the four walls of a building. I hope you haven't thought that. We've probably, in our culture, in the way that we've been raised, in the way that we've grown up, uh, we've always known that God's accessible when you call upon Him, that He's omnipresent, that He's available, uh, that you don't have to go to a specific place to find Him. But to this woman, she's always believed and always known that if you need to meet with God, if you need the presence of the Almighty, if you need to do deal with God, you've got to go somewhere to do it. And he just says, that's all going away. It's a major statement. Monumental. He even states that not only is this taking place, but that this is God's desire. That God's ultimate desire is not that he would be worshipped within the confines of four walls, but that he desires to be communicated and interacted with in spirit and in truth. But I think the question here, and what I want you to notice this morning and what we're going to look at is, what in the world does a statement such as that mean in spirit and in truth? See, I don't know if you're like me, but if you say, okay, 
You want to meet with God? Okay, he's at this location in this building. My mind can comprehend such a thing. Even though that's actually really strange to say that the Almighty God is in a building somewhere. It's a really strange, but still, that's, that's easy for my mind to comprehend. You go to the temple, you meet with God, got it. And then if the statement now is this, and think with me here along this, where Jesus would say, okay, he's not going to be in the building anymore. Instead, if you want to meet with him, you do it in spirit and in truth. It's a little hard to wrap my mind around. I don't know about you. The idea of, okay, don't go to the building. Instead, meet with him in spirit and in truth. Almost a cryptic statement. How does our interaction and our relationship and our worship of God go from being in a location to being in spirit and in truth? Before we get to the spirit aspect of this, he qualifies the idea of in spirit by saying also in truth. These are not uh, two aspects. They're part of the same aspect. And he says this worship of God is going to be in truth. Now, if we start talking about spirituality and we start talk about worshiping God in spirit and we start talk about being spiritual and, and, and having these spirit moments, at some point, somebody's going to go, hey, wait a second. That sounds really charismatic. Is you guys going to be slain in the spirit? You're going to be rolling around on the floor? Somebody's going to be screaming up and down, running up and down the aisles. I mean, is that what we're talking about here? Some overly emotional a doctrineless spectacle. That's not what we're talking about. Let's understand, let's get that right off the table right away because Jesus didn't say in spirit, he said in spirit and in truth. There's truth. Truth is not cast aside for spiritual life. To be in truth is to stand upon the word of God and the precepts of the one who has given us spiritual life. If, if, our, if our spirituality is about dancing around in the spirit as we justify our sin, as we downplay the Bible, as we manufacture some emotional experience, that's not in truth. And that's fraudulent worship. That's nothing like what Jesus is talking about. Let's take that right off the table. Nobody at any point is suggesting that Jesus said spirituality is about downplaying truth. He says it's in spirit and in truth. In fact, 1 John would say that if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. He would say thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and thy law is truth. Any supposed worship that intentionally contradicts his words and his commands is not the truth and is not the true worship and true fellowship of God as Jesus would define it. We understand that. So if our worship looks like where we say, I know the Bible says whatever, but I just feel like worship is kind of like you're not, a, you're not anywhere about what Jesus is talking about. You're not in the worship that he says. Because so many people will go about and say, you know, I know the Bible says this, and I know Christians say this, but I just feel like Christianity is supposed to look like this. And I'm just convicted not to be that way. And I just feel like this. And I think we ought to just be spiritual. No, no, no. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about. He says, my spirit, the worship of me in spirit, is combined with truth. Not aside from it. 
So the worship of the Spirit that he talks about is the worship of the Spirit in truth. Do not deceive yourself into thinking that just because you perceive something as spiritual, that it's his Spirit. Because his Spirit is in truth. But I think we understand truth. That word we can wrap our minds around a little bit. A little bit less in 2018 than we used to be able to. But the idea of truth is still kind of objective. There's that which is real and right and defined according to his word. And there's that which is contrary to it, which is not truth. We can wrap our minds around that. But I think the real question that we often are confused about and not sure of what it means is this idea of worship him in spirit. We kind of already mentioned it, but we could talk about all kinds of very, very strange things that take place in the spirit. If we were to take the time and even go to the book of 1 Corinthians, you would see Paul addressing them for their spiritual works that he would say really aren't spiritual. In fact, Paul goes to them at one point and go, guys, listen, you got to stop doing what you're doing because people come in, they think you're drunkards. What are you? They think you're out of your mind. What are you doing? <laughs> That's how he responds to them. Because what they're doing is craziness. It's not spiritual. And there's a lot that's that way. But to understand what is in spirit, this idea of worshiping him in spirit, we've kind of got to go all the way back. And so come with me for a moment as we do this. Mankind was created in a very unique way. Nothing else that God has ever created has been created like mankind has been created. In that we actually have two planes of existence. You understand that God created angels and he created them as spiritual beings. And then he created animals and he created them as physical beings. And then he created mankind as both. You understand? Genesis 2.7, it says, The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. In fact, if we were to go and look at the history and etymology of the word spirit, we would understand that it actually stands and is conjoined with the word breath in that when God breathed his breath into mankind, he actually breathed spirit into him. Isn't that amazing? That's awesome. And so when mankind was created, he was created as a very unique creature that was both a physical creature and a spiritual creature. That both had a body, a physical being that could live and could die, but that wouldn't be the end of him. Because he also had an eternal spirit that could live and would live somewhere eternally. Two, two parts. Uh, multiple pieces. And this spirit was the means by which man had the ability to fellowship with God in a very real way. If you understand what Jesus says, he says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit. A simply and purely physical being would have no means to worship with God properly. You understand? They wouldn't have the ability to have perfect and true fellowship with God because God is a spirit, is what Jesus said. That that must be done spiritually by that which is spiritual. And so this spiritual life that Adam and Eve possessed was the means by which they could have a real fellowship with God. They were complete because they were alive spiritually, because they had fellowship with their creator. 
That's what allowed them to be complete. It's how they were created to be. This was by design. Mankind was created to be an autonomous being with free will that also held the capacity to love and have fellowship with God. Very unique. Very amazing. He made us to know him and to walk with him and to fellowship with him and to worship him. That's why we were created. It's part of our being. It's part of why we exist. You can never, listen, you can never be a dog that's completely satisfied with a full bowl and a pat on the head. You weren't created to be that way. I'm real glad that dogs can be. I can come home after being gone for a week, and he's as excited to see me. And if I leave for five minutes, he's just as excited to see me. If I give him a bowl of the same food he's ate since basically the day he was born, he's just as excited to eat it. And he's, he's never had an existential crisis. He's never communicated his hopes and dreams of becoming an architect one day. No. He's as happy as could be with a full bowl and if I'll just pet him. You with me? But you're not just physical. It's why you're never satisfied with just a full bowl. It's why if you were the pet, you would be as miserable as could possibly be. Because that's not what you were created to be. So Adam and Eve found completeness and satisfaction and wholeness in that they were united with their creator in a spiritual sense. That they could walk with him and talk with him and share love with him spiritually, not just physically. But God told Adam something would happen if he ate of the fruit that he was not to eat of. In fact, in Genesis 2.17, he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And so, as we understand, Adam and Eve ate, but their bodies lived on for hundreds of years. Was God a liar in that he said they would die? No. Adam and Eve did, in fact, die that day. They died spiritually. And I can think of no people more miserable on the face of the earth than those that had walked with God and known God and been complete in God and been whole and been perfect and walked in the cool of the day with their creator in perfect fellowship and perfect love and then to have that lost. I can think of no people more miserable than that. Horrible, horrible thing. They had to live knowing how now incomplete and broken they are every day. And this death of spirit that they had that then they passed down onto all people that would ever live changed everything. At that moment, mankind was broken, became incomplete, became wrong in so many ways. In fact, in the very next generation, we understand that Cain Uh, declares his spiritual death in such a way that he rises up against his own brother to murder him. I mean, could anything else be more indicative that something was profoundly wrong in the heart of man that was once just a generation ago perfectly united with their creator in love and innocence and purity and joy and purpose and completeness and now so broken and hurt and angry and wicked and seeking for something so much that you'd murder your own brother. 
is there any more contrast that we could paint? If you needed more, by ten generations later, the world would be so corrupt, so wicked, so full of violence, God would say, that God sends a flood. That mankind would no longer resemble the spiritual being that would have fellowship with God in perfect love. Now mankind, seeking to fill the void in their hearts, would go after riches and power and lust and destroy anyone who would get in their way because they were empty and broken and unfulfilled and desperately wicked. And God would say, we got to get rid of this. This which exists now is not what I created man to be. And this is, listen, this is how you and I entered this world. That's how we came in, on those grounds, already bound to sin, already missing something. Even at our best, we've still been kind of wicked, huh? Even at our most filled and our happiness, happiest, we've still known not complete, not total. Even when we've been most satisfied, we still had that longing that could not be fulfilled with anything this life has to offer. And as we understand, because we have the word of God, we know that Jesus came and then he would die for our sins and he would satisfy the righteousness of God. And by his death, he would make a way that we might have life. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2... Usually I'll just read it, but I want you to see this. It's amazing. If this, if this concept has not yet uh, sunk in in your mind yet in the Word of God, you need to see it. It's amazing. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul explaining what happened because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of the gospel, because Jesus would pay with his own blood for the sins of the world, and so that anybody that would call upon him would have their sins forgiven and take upon themselves the righteousness of Christ. God said this takes place in Ephesians 2.1. He says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is not a metaphor, <laughs> This is what took place. You were spiritually dead, and because of the blood of Christ, and when you called out to him for salvation, he made you alive. Look at what he says. He says, where in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also ye had all our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and who were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. He says, we walked just like the rest of this world walked. We fulfilled our lusts. We did what we wanted. And we were just as wicked and unfulfilled as anybody's ever been. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved. He says, you used to be stuck in the spiral of wickedness and emptiness, seeking your own satisfaction, but never finding it. You were dead, but no longer are. In Christ, you have now been made alive again. Where you were dead, now you live. Where you were incomplete, you are now whole. Where you were blind, you now see. Do you understand this truth in the word of God? God's spirit would then, as God reveals it, it would indwell you. And you would become again, in a very real sense, 
spiritually alive, with the ability to fellowship and interact with God in a real way. In fact, that would be so true that 1 Corinthians 3.16, he would say this, and remember, in the mind of one where the temple was a place that you went to because you couldn't get too close to God, he would say this in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Isn't that amazing? That what you would understand is it used to be you had to go to the temple and there were still parts within the tabernacle. I can't go in there. I'll die. The ark can't touch it. I'll die. Can't get that close. And so usually I'm far away, but if I need to make sacrifice or interact with God, I will briefly come into the temple where I know I can do my deal with God and I get out before he gets too upset. It's kind of your understanding. And now God says because of his sacrifice... And what's taking place because now you're alive where you were dead. His spirit now dwells in you. Where his home is not in the four walls of any building, but in your heart. You're the temple. Isn't that amazing? In fact, we have church today and we would say, God, we desire that you show up and we want to worship God. And we know that he's in this place. He's not in this place because of the building. Who cares about the building? You think he's in this building? Can I tell you what? If he's going to be in a building, he's not getting in one with candelabras. I just believe that. That's in my heart. I had to throw that in. No. He's only here because he's in here. That's the only reason why he's here. is because you showed up and you brought him in here. In Christ we're now complete and indwelled by the Spirit of God. He would say the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We know we're with Him. We know we're alive. We know we're okay. We know we're His children. And listen, before we move on, if you haven't been saved, if you hadn't had a time in your life where you called out to Christ and received this forgiveness of sins, where you've been born again, I hate to say this, but you're dead. I don't care how successful you get in your life. I don't care if you gain power and respect. I don't care if you fix all your problems. I don't care if you leave a legacy to this world and your name is remembered forever. It doesn't matter. You'll never be complete without being made alive in Christ and being indwelled with His Spirit. If you've not received Him this morning, you're missing something. And no matter where you look, you'll always be missing it until you find Him. And you're quickened. He says, the first Adam was made a living soul, but the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Anyway, so that's what a spirit is. That's what this is talking about. And he says, listen, our worship to him is going to be worship in the spirit and in truth. We're going to worship in that way, in the way in which we've now been made alive. In the way in which we've now been quickened, where we were dead, we now have the capacity and ability to commune with him and worship him in a spiritual way. Not confined by walls or physical locations, but instead in a spiritual sense. What does that look like? What does that mean? Is it just a theological distinction that only matters if you're going to write a discourse about it? No, no, no. That changes everything for man. And your worship and your interaction with God, your fellowship with him, went from dead obligation from a God that was afar off to now life 
filled joy because I meet with God in the Spirit. You understand? Totally different things. Totally different. Before it was, well, you got to go to the place and you get the, the goat and he's got to look this way. And I told my neighbor a lie. So I got my turtle doves and my cornmeal and I brought there. I stood in line for a while, thought about the farm. I got to feed the hogs and such. I'm not supposed to have hogs because I'm Jewish. Forget that. <laughs> and so I go. <laughs> and so then. <laughs> You get up in line and you go, hey, sinned and blah, blah, blah. Here, you got to do this. And the priest goes, yeah, I'll take care of that. And you go, all right, great. And you go home. That was your interaction with God. Not a lot of life. In fact, and once again, I can't take all the morning and talk about this. But God would say that the, the uh, a message of the law brought death. You with me? That that was the nature you were already spiritually dead and nothing you could do in obedience to the law, in attending a temple, in following religion could bring life. It had no ability. It was all filled with death. You did it by obligation. You did it because you had to. If you were a good Jew that understood what would come next, you did it with the hopes that God would make a sacrifice, that you weren't forever dead. But it was death. Empty dead, lifeless religion. But he says, that's not the worship now. Can I tell you what? Just so that we understand, if our worship looks anything like what they talked about worship was in the temple, something's wrong. That's not what he said. He says it changes completely. You used to worship in the temple in four walls where you had to go to a location. He says, now you worship in spirit and in truth. Something changed. There's something very, very wrong with cold, dead religion. Something very, very wrong with that. Jesus said his people, the true worshipers, the ones who have been made alive where they were dead, will worship in spirit, in life. This is not the boring obligation of temple attendance. That's not the Christian life. Christian life is not go to church once a week because I feel obligated to and I'm half asleep and half dead and that's Christianity. No, 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 that's what it was. Now you're alive or you ought to be. Now you have spiritual life. Now you've been quickened. Now everything's different. Now you've been complete where you were uh, empty. Now you've been made whole. Now you've been given what you've been lacking all your existence. And you come and you worship the creator in true unity where it was impossible before. Where you could love him like you couldn't before. Because now you understand how he's loved you. And you can meet with him in a very real way. If that looks like cold, dead temple worship, something's very very wrong. We have to understand that. That's not Christianity. That's not what we've been given life for. Psalm 51.8. In fact, even David being a little ahead of his time, understanding God and the depths of God a little better than others would, he would understand this a little bit. And in verse 8, he would say, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. And I cannot help but wonder so often when we would be those that stand upon truth and say that we are the ones that have been redeemed and bought by the blood of Christ, that we've been given life where we were now dead, that we've been made complete where we were now empty, that everything's changed and everything can be okay because we've been restored to our fellowship with our Creator, and yet there's no joy, no gladness. Where is it? Where is that if this is true? If the truth is that you've been restored and made alive where you were now dead, where's the joy and gladness that David would talk about? That would come with life instead of death. Where's the rejoicing over that which was now broken and now is healed? Should we not cry out and rejoice because we were dead and now we're alive? Where is the joy of our salvation that cannot be silenced? Where is that if the truth is that we've been born again? Where are the lips that show forth his praise? Where's the tears in our eyes and the excitement in our hearts because now we're alive? In other words, where is the life if we're alive? Where is it? Listen, church is not the place where worship takes place because the building is special. Church is a place where we gather and worship because it's filled with people who are temples of His Spirit. And those temples, because they're filled with their Spirit, they've been given the Spirit of adoption, they cry out now with a living Spirit their praises and worship to the God who they love. Nobody's here by obligation. I hope you didn't think you got something by showing up today with God. Because I hate to say it, but there are no brownie points. There was no checklist. You got no spiritual benefits with God by just showing up. That's not the spiritual life. That's not true worship. Not by obligation, not by attendance, not by cold, dead religion. In spirit and in truth. Now these are not opposed. These are not opposite. In fact, John 16, 13 would say, How be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come? He will guide you into all truth. He would in fact say that these are conjoined. That not that they are opposed to each other, but that they are joined together. That the Spirit in fact is the Spirit of truth and will guide you into truth. It's not that if you get really lively and spiritual, you're going to be one that bounces off the walls and going crazy and you just must not have any truth. And it's certainly not that if you're really doctrinal and really scriptural, then you're inherently boring and lifeless religion. That's not the way it is. Do not be deceived. In fact, both are contained in true worship. Do not placate your conscience today and say that because you possess truth, you must have right worship. Or because you have feel spiritual that you must be right. Both are necessary for true worship. Verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Must worship him in spirit and in truth. Must worship him in spirit and in truth. Not optional. Not sometimes you can come totally zoned out and there's nothing spiritual going on. Not sometimes you can totally just be mechanical and methodical and empty and dead, and that's fine. You know, we can't can't hit on all cylinders all the time. 
No. Worship of him is in both. It contains his truth, that not a drop of it is lost or sacrificed for any feeling or any emotion, but it is most definitely and by necessity spiritual in nature. Not physical, not fleshly, not mechanical, and certainly not dead and lifeless. We have a tendency in our hearts to go one direction or the other. We have a tendency to believe that because we have a feeling, it must be spiritual. When that's not what God says. And we have a tendency to think that because we possess truth, we must be right. No, you can have truth and not have spirit. You absolutely can. Did you know you can read the word of God and declare its precepts and talk about it and have nothing spiritual going on? It's possible. I've seen it plenty of times. We design often, and we have this desire to do right and maybe stand upon truth, and so often we design our worship and design our services and design our lives like they're sales presentations. Like, like a service is here, we've, we've got everything going on, and you've got to have this, and let me tell you what, if you uh, buy four doctrinal books, you'll get the fifth one free. And let me tell you what, if you show up to outreach, we got Krispy Kreme donuts, and I'm all for all of that. Don't misunderstand me. But man, there ought to be spiritual life. Not just that it's right, not just that it's true, but that it's alive. We read our Bibles sometimes and pray out of religious obligation instead of a yearning of our living spirit to commune with our Creator. We're in church and we sing because we sing songs in church. I don't know what to do. Instead of because our mouths could not possibly keep silence with the praise of the God who died for us. We pray because, well, Christians pray. I don't, that's what you do. We pray because, well, we hope it works. Something's going with it. Instead of because we could not not speak to our creator. Our spirit bears witness with him and we just have to speak to him. We say amen and assent intellectually to the truth, but nothing's happening in our spirit often. I thought about this morning as we're in the month of witnessing and we're talking about sharing the gospel and getting the name of Jesus out. And man, that's so important. That's so vital. Uh, uh, if we were to talk about anything and not mention not only the name of Jesus Christ, but that he brings the gospel and we have an obligation and a duty to get that out. If we were to do anything and not discuss that at least a little, we'd be missing it. In fact, Spurgeon would say, if you preach a single sermon and Jesus doesn't show up, it probably should be your last. Because <laughs> you got no business doing it. So I don't want to undermine the value of evangelism and the value of the gospel, something so important. It's the only reason why we could be here. But as you could, I want you to think about maybe a moment in which maybe an especially dead and lifeless church member or attender would come and they would want to be evangelistic and they would maybe invite somebody to service and they would be at work and they would be saying, oh, you don't understand. This changed my life. No, you don't get it. Everything's different. I was, I was born again. He goes, born again? He goes, yeah, I'm alive. It's amazing. Called out to Jesus. Everything's changed. My life's different. I'm a new creature. You need to get it. And they go, I don't get it. And they go, well, listen, why don't you come to church with me? You'll get it then. So come to church with me. And they agree 
reluctantly. And so this especially dead and lifeless church member that's evangelistic goes, and he says, all right, we're going to go. Service is at 11. And their friend says, all right, so you'll be here like 1030? And they go, no, 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 no. Service is at 11, so I'm going to be there about 11. We'll be there about 1115. And the guy goes, what? He goes, yeah, you don't, the beginning, you know, it's long. You got to, every, every week you go to 1115? Yeah, I go 1115 every time, yes. I'm gonna, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to pretend like something happened this morning again, and that's why we're late, but we just do this, it's fine. We're going to show up about 1115, So because this is the most important thing in the world to me. I'm alive where I now was dead. Everything's amazing where now before it was death and destruction on my way to hell. Now I'm alive because somebody died for me, so we're going at 1115. All right, so we show up. 11.15, we come in, and he goes, where do you want to sit? You want to get front row? Get ahead of the action? No, 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 no. Best seats are in the back. No offense to anybody in the back today. No offense to anybody in the back. So you sit down, 11.15, start singing, and the songs are nothing but the blood of Jesus, which now, because he shed his blood for me, I'm alive where I now was dead. It's amazing. We're singing these songs, and our friend looks over, and we're... Barely mouthing the words, I don't know. Okay. Check the fantasy real quick. Does this song usually have 12 verses? I don't know. My goodness. <laughs> and they're looking over and they're going, okay. And then we hit, of course, right, maybe at the second song we go, well, I, okay, I gotta head to the bathroom. You can't stay, you gotta pace yourself. Okay, you gotta make at least a couple breaks throughout. So this is first bathroom break, okay? We'll go, we'll head to the bathroom, we'll come back. We'll get through prayer time as we think about what's going to take place later, all right? Uh, Alex Collins didn't have a good week last week, but he's playing, all right, all right. Okay, what, what are we doing? Okay, we're back, all right. Start preaching, and we're zoning out. We're falling in and out of sleep the whole time. S the, the invitation starts. We forget to stand up because we're passed out. But man, we're alive, aren't we? Spiritual life. The whole invitation we're thinking about later, we get out, we're dismissed, we go out and we go, what'd you think? Man, amazing, right? And they're going, you have cognitive dissonance? What's wrong with you? <laughs> you are you saying you enjoyed that? Because you totally did not enjoy that. You totally wanted no part of that. So you're, wait, wait a second. So wait, you just told me all week that everything is different in your life. You're a new creature because now you're alive where you were now dead. Somebody loved you enough to die for you and you've given him your whole life to praise him and to glorify him and nothing's more exciting than that aspect in your life. And, and that's what just happened when you said you were going to work? What? Can I tell you what? And I don't mean this offensively and don't take it offensively, but for some people I've seen worshiping God in church if I wasn't already saved, I would leave. I mean, it's just, how is that life? How is that true worship? It's obligation. It's religiosity. It's punching a clock. And look at this, and I'll be done here in a moment. Not only is that as lifeless as it could ever be in God's house as we meet for the specific purpose of worshiping Him, but listen, we've already noted, you don't come here for the exclusive time of worship. This is not the only place of that. This is not the only place where you have a time where you can fellowship and have joy and speak to and worship and praise your creator. In fact, you ought to do that all the time. You're the temple. 
Wherever you go, it's temple time. But what does it say about us if as we've taken a time and we say, yeah, I know that's all the time I'm going to worship and praise the Creator because I love Him, but we're going to take a special time and we're going to pour extra energy and extra special attention to doing it together. And the best we can muster is barely half awake. You're going to tell me your worship and your praise and your communion with God all week is amazing? Maybe, maybe you're going to say you're so worn out from praising God all week that you can't stay awake here. Maybe that's what it is, right? And I don't mean to be harsh. That's not my desire. My desire is never to insult anybody or to make somebody feel like they're not worthy. Listen, I'm not worthy. I'm a failure. I mess up. I'm often prone to wander and stray. And I'm often fighting to be what I am in God. But let me say this. We're coming, and our lives are about now the Savior who died for us, and now we're alive, and now everything's different, and now we're a new creature. Who are we kidding when our lives are actually a cold, dead religious walk? That is, listen, that is no more true Christianity than the Christianity that lacks the basic elements of truth. Because those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Yeah, we're fine with looking at all the other religions that lack truth and going, yeah, it's fake worship, fraudulent, nothing to that at all. When ours have no place of anything spiritual taking place, can I tell you, and I don't mean this harsh, it's just as fraudulent. If God died that you might be made alive, then let's live. So let me ask you, are you worshiping today? And I don't mean just here. Here's just an example. I mean in your life. Are you worshiping and living in spirit and in truth or in death and dull and lifeless religion? But let me ask you maybe a better question. What do you want? Who would want to have cold, dead, lifeless religion? Who would desire? I know that's how our, the bent of our heart is to yield and, and go towards that. But who would desire that? Who wants to come to church week after week and you only can manage to be half awake? That sounds horrible. I gotta, miss, I gotta miss football every week to just be half awake? <laughs> Why? Why would you want that? You gain nothing. Listen, God died that you might be alive. So let's live. Let's praise him like we're alive. Let's let it say that the joy and the praise of our Savior is on our lips continually. Let it be said that he's restored to us the joy of salvation. Let it be said that we cannot but speak of the things that we've seen and heard. Let it be that we cannot but praise and worship our Creator. Let it not be that we can't not but evangelize because it's all we can talk about because we're alive. Where we now we're dead. Let's be alive. Let's worship like we're alive because that's worshiping in the spirit. Let's stand to our feet this morning and bow our heads.